Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, and welcome to Romaniacs. Boris Johnson is out of hospital, holed up in checkers, so it's officially okay to be mean about him again. Enjoy. <laughs> I'm Dorian Litsky, joining this week... Uh, some of the Prime Minister's most dedicated well-wishers. Alexandreo <laughs> is a writer, actor and lockdown chef extraordinaire, currently manning the Romaniac's European Bureau in Mykonos. Hello, Alex. Hello, Galimera. Boris Johnson gave uh, thanks to Jenny from New Zealand and Luis from Portugal after he was released from hospital. Um, oh, which nice. did not impress you. Which did not no. impress you, did it? <laughs> um, well, no, it's not that it didn't impress me. I thought it was lovely. It's just that I am, I think for historical reasons, understandably cautious of what Boris Johnson says. That's all. <laughs> what, could, what could he have done to arouse such suspicions, Alex? Um, well, uh, pretty much lied to everyone he's ever met, as far as I can tell. So, yeah. Aside from that, get well soon. <laughs> yes. Um, Pr- Pretty Patel was wheeled out for the first time since lockdown began last week, and then he <sighs> made a a clanging non-apology, <laughs> saying she was sorry if people feel there have been failings. Emphasis mine um, over the provision of PPE for NHS staff. Uh, do, you, do you think she's? Do you think she's blown her big shot? Is she going to be be voted off next week? I don't. I I think they should they should set up like a stack of encyclopedias with a chair in front of them and a leak instead of a microphone. And and if she complains, just tell her we're sorry. You feel that's not a podium, um, and you're not (laughs) doing you're not doing the briefings any longer. We assure you, you are. You can really tell which politicians have the have the right touch in a, in a time of national crisis. Ian Dunt is editor of politics.co.uk. Hello, Ian. Hello, hello. Uh, do you think that the the presence of so many migrant workers in the Corona struggle is likely to shift opinions on immigration, especially the division between skilled and unskilled workers, or is this just is this just a temporary, you know, is this just temporary goodwill, Luis from Portugal syndrome? Mm. Where where they're they're thanked now, but it, it won't actually leave a mark. In the long I think term. the thing is that's that's up to us, right? Like it, politics presents you with moments that you can utilize, and it doesn't. You know, maybe you'll put everything into it and be as canny and as committed as you can, and it still won't turn out that way. But it just provides you with opportunities. Like the last opportunity, like this for immigration. It's a horrible way to put it. In both cases, was um, Alan Kurdi. Uh, the the little boy that was washed up on the shore during the refugee crisis. And for a moment, if you remember, it didn't last long. It lasted about sort of three, four weeks. There was this outpouring of empathy and there was an opportunity. And it's not like nothing came from that. I mean, we used that to secure, you know, 20,000 Syrians. I mean, a drop in the ocean compared to what was needed, but 20,000 Syrian refugees being able to come to the UK. But for those people, that was incredibly meaningful. Now, here there is an opportunity to, to work on a proper recalibration of people's sense of value and worth and togetherness even in society to humanize immigration rather than it being this constant problem of, you know, danger from crime and taking your jobs and using welfare. There's an opportunity there. It doesn't mean that we'll succeed, but there's a chance. And so we should fucking take it. Well, before we get started, um, and me, our guest, we're going to discuss the blockbuster read of the week. It's longer than the new Hilary Mantel, even more backstabbing. <laughs> Slightly less attractive prose. 
It's the unputdownable leaked 860-page dossier, the work of the Labour Party's governance, <laughs> legal unity, face of anti-Semitism, 2014-2019. Um, Alex, you've actually I, you've you've read all of it, haven't you? I have. I, I have too. Well, I mean, oh. I would. There were bits I skimmed. I, I, I admit, <laughs> yes. it's a lot of it's a lot of pages. Um, Alex, uh, so you yeah, you've read the you've read the whole thing. Um, What's the executive summary? Not their summary, uh, your summary. Um, the executive summary is that um, politics is quite a rough uh, uh, business with a lot of backstabbing in internal politics. That's that's the summary. <laughs> I, I know it should come as a shock to everyone. <laughs> I genuinely, I don't, I don't get the reaction of of the Corbyn. Um, fans in this. I mean, obviously it contains some, well, it contains some horrible stuff that was going on behind the scenes, but but they're acting, A, as if this was all a shock to a man who has basically been one of the ringleaders of factionalism for the last three decades. Um, and And then the idea is that no one had any clue this was going on, which I, I just don't believe, um, and that it was someone else's job to sort it out. I I don't understand at when when comes the point. Is it after two years? Is it after four? Is it after a hundred? Is it never? When it becomes actually the leader's responsibility to sort this out. I I don't get the, the I don't understand the argument. It's like you you've shown a report that that basically demonstrates the Lab- Labour Party headquarters were an absolute shit show. And who's to blame after four years of this man being in charge, uh, getting every administrative instrument, every position of power, appointing the people he wanted to no. appoint? When does Alex, it become what... his responsibility? I don't get it. Alex, I think I think you mangled the timeline there because most of the uh, the really uh, sort of nasty backstabby stuff is before he had the administrative control. It's the early. It's the first two years. Sure, but but then you so, look at the the result of the twenty seventeen election, and you look at the result of the twenty nineteen election, where presumably these people had been rooted out, and there was a lot less of that going on. I mean, there was visibly a lot less of that going on. He had a lot more support in the parliamentary party. There was a lot more briefing against him and all of that. There was a lot more dissent. And he managed to do significantly worse in the 2019 election. So, I again, I don't understand what the point being made is. Well, Ian, it, it, it was spun uh, as proving uh, that staffers on the Labour right, A, deliberately slowed down suspensions for anti-Semitism to embarrass Corbyn, B, sabotaged the 2017 election campaign, which Labour would otherwise have won. Those are the, the sort of claims made. I looked at those relevant passages and it seemed to have a quite creative uh, misreading of a couple of quotes. And yet there's lots of stuff. If you wanted to make the Labour right look bad, there are you know, like hundreds of horrible WhatsApp messages that are sort of undeniably true. So do you think that the kind of, that the, it was just sort of, it was unwisely overspun and instead of pointing at the things that nobody could argue with, it made claims that are actually pretty dubious? Yeah, but I mean, what, what else could they do, right? Once you put yourself in the mindset of these guys, you know, they, they know that headline of, you know, Labour right was, you know, pretty aggressive in its language, um, in its internal language, and didn't like Corbyn much. It's just like, that's not a headline. Labour right was responsible for failure on anti-Semitism is a, is a headline. Oh, and Labour right tried to stop Labour from winning in 2017 is a headline. The thing is, they, they completely failed to demonstrate any of these things. But they clearly, they had to go for the headline. I mean, look, I've got to say, like, you know, first, I I feel like I've gone through about four different emotional stages with this thing. I mean, the first one was just sort of bored frustration that it's like, oh, come on, fuck off, Labour. Like, we're, I mean, please, we're in the middle of coronavirus right now. Do you honestly have to be doing, doing this right now and demanding that I actually have to take time out of my life to read it? 
then the sort of intellectual thing of just like, well, this doesn't demonstrate what you're saying. And now I've just got this kind of growing, mucky rage of just, you know, I wonder what it was that created anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Would it have any connection to a leader who, you know, repeatedly would would become friends with anti-Semites, would make anti-Semitic comments himself, would fail to take action against them? And then after years of it, this is the shit they come out with this report that's like oh it was it's oh it's the Blairites fault who would have fucking thought it's the Blairites of course that are responsible for their own failings and you sort of think like this is what you've got like this is what you fucking churned out so I, to, I at this point I'm just like I, I would love never to hear another fucking word from these people ever again well unfortunately we've kept our guest this week waiting rather than drag her into <laughs> the dossier muck um, I'm very, very glad to meet her. Alex Phillips shares her name with a former Brexit Party MEP. We believe we've got the right one. Um, you have, yeah. <laughs> she was elected as a Green MEP for the South East in 2019 and is also the Mayor of Brighton and Hove. After Brexit Day on January 31st, she said she would miss making an impact in the European Parliament and was glad to be getting her social life back. <laughs> so much for that. Uh, Alex Phillips, welcome. Thank you. So right now, um, you've, been, you've been stranded... Uh, stranded in France for the lockdown. Yeah, so I've been here for a month. I came for less than a week uh, for a skiing holiday, and we just got caught here, so we've we've just stayed. Do you have to? Do they make you ski every day? The ski, <laughs> uh, the skiing didn't happen for me because I don't like skiing. But um, they, they sadly they closed them pretty much much straight away. They've taken the lockdown here very very seriously. Uh, just from day one, you cannot leave your house without a piece of paper, which they've now turned into an app. And it um, it says what time you're leaving, uh, why you're you're venturing out. And so, um, yeah, it, it kind of feels like here they're taking it much more seriously than in the UK. Um, so that's that's a good thing. I'm pleased yeah, it's, that it's we're the here. same. It's the same here in Greece, Alex. Exactly. Right. The same. Wow. Yeah. And I think for much of Europe, really, are taking it very, very seriously like this. Whereas in the UK, it seems to have been like in dribs and drabs. And even now, you know, people can just go out for as long as they want, really. Um, I mean, they say 20 minutes, but there's, they don't need to prove that. Um, so, yeah, I'm kind of pleased we're here um, because it's just an absolute shit show at home. There was an interesting um, report in Politico last week talking about why the EU... Um, was perhaps sort of slow to respond to the pandemic in various ways. And one of the reasons was Brexit, Brexit Day, that was, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously consuming a huge amount of energy Mm. um, at at quite a kind of important time. Mm. Um, Do you remember much sort of talk of the virus during... January, when yeah. obviously this huge event was coming up. Yeah, I do remember the final week in January, I was taking the lift down with one of my um, press officers and she couldn't pronounce coronavirus. Um, she was saying like corona or something like that. And I said, no, no, it's like the beer, corona. Um, and so I remember having that conversation with her, but it was very much like there's this peripheral virus like we're not really sure how it's going to affect things here um that's what it was like at, at the end of january that's how i recollect it and what was it? i mean you were only there for, for for a few months what was the what was the last day like for you well incredibly sad really i mean the last day itself was the friday i think the worst day that week was on the wednesday when we um had the voting and uh, you know all of the palaver with the brexit party meps which was downright embarrassing uh waving flags so forth um but it was the old lang syne really that got me you know um i didn't expect to be that emotional uh despite having you know wanted to be an mep for over a decade and really working hard to get there um I, but i was really emotional and i think it was the whole old lang syne thing that got me in the end where we all stood up it was it's really quite difficult to to um articulate what that felt like at that time with all of those people in the in the room holding hands and swaying um and so yeah that was that was my really poignant sad moment um and then how many years ago does that now seem oh like years (laughs) (laughs) and how long ago was it (laughs) so it was another lifetime yeah 
On this week's podcast, the EU has approved a massive bailout for struggling member states, but is it massive enough? And as the lockdown continues across the world, what's going to happen when we're all finally let out? What kind of economic landscape will we find? That's after a few words from Alex Andre. A quick one this week. If you enjoyed our live stream a couple of weeks ago, so did we. It was a huge success and we're doing another one on Thursday the 7th of May. And this time it will be properly moderated to keep out the riffraff trolls and racists. We're doing it on Zoom again. And this time we'll be running a pre-registration system to manage the numbers. Not everyone could get in last time. It also means we can have proper chat during the session and a Q&A afterwards. Patreon people will get first notification on how to register, plus video and audio recordings of the whole event afterwards. So if you'd like to sign up, just search Patreon Remaniacs. And if you're one of the very many people who signed up after the last live stream, thank you so much and welcome. We very much appreciate the backing of all our Patreon supporters, especially in these times. That's our next live stream on Thursday, 7th of May. Search Patreon Romaniacs to sign up and be the first through the virtual doors. Thanks, Alex. First up this week, everything changed right after we recorded last week's episode as EU finance ministers injected 500 billion euros into a rescue package for countries struggling with the coronavirus pandemic. The European Central Bank had suggested the EU would need up to three times that amount, but that's something. But just before we recorded this episode, it emerged that Britain will not be requesting an extension of its transition. Apparently, a key consideration is that Britain doesn't want to get drawn into discussions about preserving the European economy, because why would we need to shore up our biggest export markets? Ian, how does the EU uh, come out of this episode so far? We, we, we talked about this last week, that it was a real kind of threat to the image of sort of competence and unity. They've certainly managed to get something done. Yeah, they've managed to get something done and they've come up with a big number. Um, oh, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty concerned still. So, I mean, the, the, in terms of what happened that was positive was that it looks like uh, there's a two or three different initiatives. Um, but the most interesting one was getting the European st- stability mechanism and using that for healthcare costs and removing the typical austerity conditions that it comes with. Now, the thing is, again, healthcare costs is a bit baffling, really, because you're like, well, that's not actually really the, the, the proper issue. But the proper issue is that there are countries with quite a lot of debt already that investors could quite quickly say, well, actually, we're gonna, we'd be expecting very high yields on this debt because you're, you're a risky proposition. That's exactly what happened after the financial crisis. That's exactly what could happen in the aftermath of this. So attaching it to healthcare costs seemed to me either just mad pointlessness or uh, taking place with an awareness that national governments are going to do some rather imaginative accounting about where ex- which department expenditure is coming from. But ultimately, it's not the number that matters, even though you know half a trillion is a lot of money and the kind of thing that shuts journalists up for a while. What matters to me is the mutualization of debt. Now, all of these initiatives that the EU announced, or three of them, they're all still loans, right? These are countries still taking out loans. And ultimately, unless you have something that is providing that everyone is in it together on loans, that it's not just basically Spain and Italy racking up enormous debts to the point where they actually find themselves in difficulty in the market, I don't think you've got a proper solution to this problem. And until you do, that danger of us going back to 2011, 2012, that painful, painful contortion, that division between the countries of Europe that has ultimately helped create the kind of nationalism that we see now in Europe, including the UK, but but especially on the mainland, then that still looks like it's going to raise its head again. So, you know, you're at least happy they managed to achieve something and it didn't all fall apart. But you look at the contents of this thing and it's pretty hard to feel very confident. Alex Andre, we we said quite confidently that it was inevitable that an extension would be requested. Now, apparently, it's not. Um, and the thinking is that it will be up to the EU to request an extension, which then puts the UK in a position where they, they, it's very difficult for them to say no, but they mm. don't want to be the ones to ask. Um, so I was a bit surprised by that because I thought an extension was inevitable. Is this just, is there any, is there any uh, serious thinking behind this or, or is this just sort of get Brexit um, regardless? I, I, I don't know that it's serious thinking. Um, there, is a, there is a school of thought. There is a school of thought that says, look, if the entire economy is going down the shitter and we're talking about a 35% contraction, 
then we might as well take the pain of a no deal brexit at the same time because it'll be in a you know a, a, a small drop in that ocean i think that is to fundamentally misunderstand the economics of this like really tragically every ec- modern economic analysis of the great depression in the us identifies as the cause for the depression not the bursting of that bubble that caused that momentary deflation of everything. It wasn't the market shock on its own that uh, transformed into the Great Depression. The problem was that the economy settled, found equilibrium at much lower levels of demand. And that's what was impossible to shift out from. And so with coronavirus, you have no situation where you have this external factor that's exerting a huge amount of pressure. But as long as the fundamentals remain healthy, an economy can spring back up relatively easily, even after such a catastrophic drop. Because actually, as long as you keep most people at work with a furloughing scheme, as long as demand doesn't drop off, as long as the the lockdown is short and sharp, everything can spring back up. If you pile on to that a systemic uh, market shock like no-deal Brexit, then you are engineering a situation where you're turning a recession into a depression. And I think... Uh, I think economic thinking in the government, if they really are going for this, no extension or only a very short extension, it's really muddled and they need to be very, very careful. Alex Phillips, we, we've talked before about what the UK is missing out on in terms of uh, EU schemes to um, collectively buy enough kind of ventilators, PPE mm. equipment and so on, those, those pesky missed conference calls. What do you think the UK is missing out on here in terms of the uh, well, recovery packages? You know, a, a, a slice of, of what's available, which is 500 billion euros or half a trillion in the rescue package, um, which includes the safety net for lots of different types of people, workers, the self-employed, companies, healthcare systems. So, you know, quite a lot, potentially. And when you were... Uh, in the European Parliament, where did you still see the, the troublesome fault lines within Europe? Because it, they don't, it, it, you know, the EU hasn't moved as one so far. Who do you, which countries do you find were often the most reluctant? Um, well, you know, I mean, um, I mean, my work really centred around either my committee work. Um, it centred around this intergroup on a Green New Deal, which I established. Um, and, and obviously work within the Green Group. So I didn't actually have much um, analysis of that myself. I can't say, oh, yeah, it was the Northern European countries um, who were always, you know, um, asking for more and, and not compromising and so forth. And it was the, the Southern European and the East European, your, you know, the poorer com- com- countries who were always wanting. I didn't have that mm. experience at all. Um, but we can see that sort of play out here, um, it, you know, in that this agreement that has, has come forth is obviously a compromise. And um, there are countries like Holland, who have backed down from their original requests and um, now they're agreeing to immediate funding for those countries most in need, like Italy and Spain, for example. I mean, they back, they back down a bit, but I think ultimately Holland and Germany will feel that they came out of those negotiations pretty well. I mean, most of the stuff were properly radical measures that would have shown real solidarity were, were sort yeah. of stuffed into mm. this phrase, innovative financial instruments, which, mm. which they clearly intend to, you know, in, in that phrase, innovative financial instruments is, is the thing that lets everyone go home and tell them, don't worry, it's okay. It, that, that's where the stuff is. But I, I, the impression you get, and from the manner I think the Dutch were talking afterwards, was that they clearly felt they'd managed to pretty much kick that stuff away, like much to the detriment of pretty much all of us, apart from, you know, the Netherlands and Germany. I also think it will probably change. 
um, I think they will go further. I think this is this is an initial reaction to what's going on, and everyone still has half an eye on mm. protecting their own national economy, protecting mm. their own deficit figures. You know, once this thing sweeps across Europe and we come out the other side and we see that actually everyone's, you know, deficits... Uh, are temporarily horrific, and everyone's economy has contracted significantly. I I sense that countries like the Netherlands will actually be quite uh, quite grateful for being able to effectively farm out some of their financial measures so that they don't show up on on their balance sheet, as it were. Um, they can be transposed into European um, uh, instruments. So I think this is just an initial marker. I think it will be a, a constantly reviewed situation. And I think around about end of June, they will move significantly. I want that to be true very much, but I, I am feeling pretty negative at the moment. There's this real... You know, you look at the Euroscepticism of sort of, you know, wealthier countries in the north. It's why should we pay out for, you know, poorer countries in the south? You look at what's going on, especially in Italy. Like, I mean, Conte put, Conte put a lot of emphasis on being able to sort out some kind of mutualization of debt. He, he, raised, mm. expe he raised expectations too high. And th that is his own problem. That's something that he did. But nevertheless, at the moment, he is now getting the absolute shit kicked out of him by La Liga and by Five Star, because he's come back pretty much empty-handed. Right? As those, those tensions, those dynamics are there, those unique forms of Euroscepticism, and this is the easy bit, right? Like, we haven't been hit by it yet. The, the really tough part, I think, comes you know, maybe six, 12, maybe even 24 months down the line, because not everyone has the same situation with spending. Like, no, matter what, no matter how much money you know, Germany or even a country like Britain spends, which, you know, according to the OBR at the moment, is heading towards 100% debt-to-GDP ratio, we're still print our own money. We're still considered, you know, to have the, the kind of bonds that we have are the kind of places that investors run to when things look scary. Now, that's just not the case for, for countries like Spain and countries like Italy, and they're going to get a really hard time. And unless there's solidarity there, unless Europe shows that it's prepared to behave in a way that isn't as morally degraded as the way that it behaved in 2011, 2012, then we're going to see a replay. And it's a, it's a real question as to whether like the idea of Europe, the ideal of it, like the, 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 the aspirations of it can survive another round of that kind of really grim politics. Next up, Dominic Raab confirmed on Monday that there are no current plans to lift the UK's lockdown. Countries like Denmark, Austria and Italy are planning gradual reopenings, but for now parks, pubs and restaurants are shut for the foreseeable. This was followed the next day by predictions the UK economy should shrink by a staggering 35% by June as a result. For context, the Office of Budget Responsibility forecasts a bigger contraction than during the Spanish influenza pandemic, the 2008 financial crisis or either of the world wars. Globally, Reuters polled more than 50 economists who predicted everything from a 6% drop in the global economy to a possible 0.7% rise. I would like to meet those people <laughs> as a result of the virus-related shutdown. Man, their glass is always half full. <laughs> Maybe this is good? Because, Ian, this seems like the most severe economic hardship uh, for, for decades. The predictions include a potential loss of 2 million jobs in the UK, which would be mass unemployment in the UK. Uh, on a scale we haven't seen since the 80s. Um, our benefit system has generally been redesigned around job seeking. How is that going to work when there aren't the jobs? How much is Britain going to have to change to adapt to this? Yeah, well, it won't. But then, that, you know, th this is why we have to win the argument. And you can feel that argument now starting to creep up. Like if you look at Sajid Javid, was is already tweeting along the lines of basically that the standard austerity narrative of, you know, we're, we're going to have to bail out our future selves and all that, which is just, you, it is completely the wrong position to take on what is happening to us and what is going to happen to us. Like, if you are in a situation like this, as Alex was alluding to earlier, if you're in a situation like this and you do not make sure that your economy starts working, that's when the scars show up and those scars can stay with you for decades. Like why do we, you know, we, we spent years right on this podcast talking about, you know, 
the, the people that voted for Brexit because they felt left behind, people in the Rust Belt in the US, why were they supportive of, of Donald Trump? Those uh, things originally go back to the 1980s to the industries left behind by, you know, massive interest rates introduced to, to defeat inflation and not protecting um, communities that were left behind when, when the work went mostly to, to Asia. Now, we have a situation like this here now, and we know the solutions to problems like this. We know that you have to prevent mass unemployment. You have to keep on spending to make sure that your economy survives this process. Now, that's been done in this initial stage. That is exactly what we have done when we look at stuff like the furlough scheme. Coming out of it, there are going to be voices in the Conservative Party which are going to say, right, that's it now. We're out of the immediate bit. So it needs to be austerity immediately so we can try and balance the, the national budget. Now, that is precisely the wrong thing to do at the wrong time. And if they do it, we are, we are quite, quite catastrophically fucked in a way that will go on for years, probably decades to come. So it's a, it's a fight that we're going to have to properly win. And we might as well start thinking about how we win that fight right now before it even starts. Well, I, mean, I don't even know how you would begin, considering that the, the, the expenditure required just to kind of keep the economy afloat at the moment. I don't even know how you begin to sort of balance that. Like, what would you have to cut? You'd have to close every library in the country, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. There's, 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 mm-hmm. I mean, I can't even imagine the scale of austerity. It's, it, I mean, that doesn't even seem to be, uh, even if you, you wanted it, it doesn't even seem to be a valid remedy for the amount of, um, the amount of kind of deficit spending that we're going to have to do. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the, the, the scale, although, of course, the scale is dependent on how strongly your economy performs afterwards. I mean, I noticed that most of the, the OBR, I think the IMF, I mean, loads of organizations seem to be coming up with this extraordinarily optimistic you know, V-shape for what takes place afterwards. We are like, on exactly what basis is it that you're saying that the economy will perform so much more strongly once this is over than it was performing in, you know, December last year before this had begun? Because it's quite hard for me to understand that, of course, you're going to get a spike of, you know, people pent up at home, suddenly getting the chance to go out. Of course, there will be some of that. But ultimately, if people don't have jobs, they don't have money to spend, and that reduces demand. So it's, it's quite hard to see how that works. The first thing is you just protect your economy. You protect people from experiencing severe hardship as a result of what is going on. And by doing that, by protecting people, you end up protecting the economy itself, dispelling those arguments that this is about ultimately about balancing the national budget right now. That's how they'll make it. They won't make it about you know, we've got to pay back all this money we've spent. It will all be about balancing the national budget and protecting our grandkids from making up from our mistakes, all of that shit. And ultimately, if that kind of economic illiteracy takes hold, it's going to be absolutely fucking brutal. Um, Alex and Dre, we had a disagreement uh, about this topic on Twitter, which one in the eye for people that call this podcast a cozy... <laughs> there are some briskly worded tweets. Um... <laughs> <laughs> and I think we were arguing about the, the argument about reopening the economy. Um, now that I, I was saying that that, that is, that has to happen soon. Uh, not the reopening, but the, 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 you know, discussion and plans have to be happening, even if the people making it most loudly at the moment are uh, Toby Young and, and Donald Trump. What is your problem with the, um, what's your problem with me? <laughs> What's your problem, mate? No, what's uh, this, is Terry from Ipswich? What's your problem? Um, no, what is what is your beef with the with the idea of even uh, of talking about um, of sort of trying to balance um, uh, about this, these concerns, the immediate I mean, concerns, the lockdown, and the the health of the economy? Okay, okay. So I have a number of beefs. <laughs> Um, There is a there is a small beef that uh, the source from which this is coming is entirely disingenuous. You know, these are these are the same people that were telling us three years ago that it doesn't matter if the economy um, contracts and people lose their jobs because Brexit is worth it. Um, You know, there are some things that are more important than the economy. Um, and, and it's precisely the same people now saying there is nothing more important than the economy. So I resent the source, but that's by the by. The, the main problem with it is that it's a false dichotomy. Again, you know, we can all 
instinctively predict X is going to happen, Y is going to happen. It's really wet finger up in the air time. The only thing we can go to is historical evidence from previous similar situations. If you look at the data from the uh, uh, influenza pandemic in 1918 to 1919, it conclusively shows that the cities, states, uh, nations that closed down sharpest and stayed closed longest bounced back the quickest. There There are no counterfactual examples to this. The states that took long to close, the cities that took long to lock down and then tried to come out too early ended up paying a heavier economic price. So it's a false dichotomy to say you're either protecting people or the economy because actually evidence says that the same action protects both. That's the first thing. The second thing is that there is a a real thin end of the wedge Uh, argument here, if you start saying that in the face of present imminent real danger, there is an economic balance to be had, uh, you are basically relegating the the sanctity of your citizens' lives to second place. Uh, You are accepting the argument that we are economic units and that sometimes you have to sacrifice a few people in order you know but but the moment you take that away from the abstract and you make it you make it specific so if you say to someone okay so how many people are in your uh, you know extended family 25 pick 3 to die now for the opportunity for the other 22 of you to possibly have a bit more disposable income in 10 years but time. that's not no 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 then no, no, it no, becomes no. But then it becomes a much more difficult. No, of course, I'm I'm no, using no, hyperbole. I'm no, using hyperbole to 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 explain a point. You know, there is no economic sense in palliative care, none at all. It would literally the only economic sense would be to leave people to die with no palliative care. You can't. You can't begin to make those sorts of calculations. It's it's a route to uncivility. I think and that's why I resent it. No, I think you're framing that all wrong. The economy, it's not about having more disposable income. It's like the economy is people. And the economy is also a health issue. Uh, and there sure. are, for example, there's a, you know, there's a University of Bristol researchers saying the tipping point is 6.4% decline. And you're reducing life expectancy. By average of three months hits the poor hardest. Another study which shows a 1% fall in employment tends to cause a, a 2% increase in chronic illness, especially mental health. You've got, yeah. obviously, lack of exercise, stress, poor diets, suicide, domestic abuse, delay in seeking medical help. Some of these are related to recession. Some of these are very specifically related to the, to the lockdown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there, is a, there is, comes a point and, it's, and obviously nobody wants to do it too early, but there does, this has to be a consideration. It's not, as, it's not lives versus money. You know, the economy is about people's lives and people, you know, it, die. I, I'm not suggesting, but I never suggested that the economy should stay, you know, we should stay locked down forever and ever or until there is a vaccine. Obviously, there is a balance. There is, there is a balance. Exit, there is an exit strategy to be found from this. All I'm saying is that there is a knee-jerk reaction that says, "Well, you know, the longer we're locked down, the more difficult it will be to bounce back economically," and it's simply historically not true. No, but, well, what, Actually, open, opening up at the right moment is what's needed for the economy to bounce. Yes, but back. the longer it goes you, on, you, the more companies collapse beyond repair. You know what I mean? It's of course the longer it goes I mean, on, the worse it becomes. Again, as I said, historical data does not bear that out. The the cities in the states that tried to open earlier ended up having a much longer tail to the economic damage that the influenza pandemic did. Um, so 
I don't I don't have all the solutions, but all I'm saying is that there's a there's a simplistic way of going, well, okay, we're gonna have to to stop the lockdown at some point because otherwise the economy is gonna collapse. And it could be precisely that sort of thinking that results in the economy collapsing. So of course there's a balance. I'm just not sure it's as straightforward as, you know, how many old people do we save today versus how many, um, uh, uh, you know, how, how many businesses will close. I don't think that's the right focus. I think th- there is room for looking at both. Alex Phillips, you're um, Mayor of Brighton and Hove, not able to, to, to be there at the moment. But obviously, you, you know, you, you're, you're very aware of the kind of concerns uh, mm. in your sort of community. And, I mean, which, which areas, I suppose, in, in your town um, are going to be in that sort of, are in most in danger at the moment of just, of just simply collapsing and not being able to restart? Um, well, you know, people are really anxious across the, across the board um, that the health of their friends and their family, if they can pay their council tax bills or other bills, um, if they can do their job while struggling childcare. I mean, this is completely unprecedented situation for people to be in. Um, and it's quite difficult, I think, for a lot of people to see a light at the end of the tunnel, to see what life is going to be like after this. Um, and whether they're going to be able to repair their lives, how many loved ones they may have lost. Um, you know, frontline workers and people who are friends and family of frontline workers, I know they're, they're increasingly concerned about their health and safety, especially those who have returned to work, who are older and perhaps more at risk. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think one of the positive things that have co- has come out of all of this has been the community action um, and that has struck me the most during this virus I think locally I mean we're incredibly lucky in Brighton and Hove that we have a very um, uh, vibrant community voluntary sector but what we've seen happen now is you know street whatsapp groups spring up across the across the board mutual aid groups and everyone seems to be chipping in and helping their neighbours, uh, whether that be buying bulk flour for the streets, to lending people bikes, to, I know in my street back there, uh, checking in on elderly neighbours who are who are completely shielding from this. So I think that is one of the huge positives that we can take from this incredibly negative situation. And there does seem to be a real fondness that people are having, a real kind of support for certain local businesses that they use. I've noticed people really trying to, you know, do whatever they can to ensure that a certain, uh, you know, cafe or restaurant or specialist shop will be able to survive, whether, you know, from ordering kind of delivery or, or collection or whatever, which is quite... Definitely. And I think, you know, in Brighton, we're really lucky that we do have a whole plethora of local community-run businesses. And that's why lots of people want to come to Brighton. They want to visit the lanes or the North Lane and pop into cafes that they can't find elsewhere um, and shops and so forth. But, you know, I think what we've seen as well is that, you know, a lot of our economy is built on very shaky foundations of precarious work and service cuts um, is more likely to tumble at the moment. And, you know, we've seen like, you know, the big um, Arcadia groups and other huge um, shopping outlets who are really struggling and you wouldn't expect them to struggle because they're big corporations. But I really hope that we do see a revival of our traditional high street, to be honest. I know that it's been wrecked in lots of places across the country, you know, where I'm from up north, um, you know, in Witness, in Wigan, in places like that, you know, um, even in Liverpool, you don't have the same sort of um, local businesses in the town centres as you might do in Brighton and Hove or other places. And I really hope that that's something that that happens now um, and that, you know, the, the, the services and goods that they're selling are useful to people. And it's not just business as usual, people going back to buying junk that they don't, don't need from Primark. Now for our segment, To the Barricades, where each week one of our regulars picks out a noble cause to raise the flag for. This week, it's Ian's turn. 
Yes, yes. Um, so look, this is this is some fucking metropolitan elite shit right here that I'm gonna do. But I but it does strike me as quite important and one of those things people don't really talk about because they're embarrassed to to talk about it. Which is like if you if you have um anyone that comes to your house for cleaning, this is the thing that it, it most people obviously are not, you know, they they haven't asked that person to come over. And at the beginning they were sort of like, well, fine, you know, we're obviously going to pay them while they're off. Now, we're now at that point, I think, where this actually starts to become quite difficult. And as people realize more and more that it may be many weeks before uh, anyone is coming to their house to do any work, and that quite possibly even when they do come back, that may not last very long before we go into another lockdown. I think it will be tempting for people to just close that stuff up, especially if they think that the government, either through universal credit or through a self-employed payment, will, will handle it. I just think, if you have retained your salary, if you are not furloughed, if you haven't been hit by this, if you're one of those lucky people that does get to work remotely and keep your salary, there is a moral imperative on you to keep on employing the people that you would normally employ during this period to come to your house and clean stuff up. Okay. Like, and on that basis, try to silence that part of voice of yourself that might be looking at the weekly outgoings and thinking, well, actually they're not here and this costs quite a bit. Try not to do that. If you can keep on paying, keep on paying. Finally, our guest this week is Alex Phillips, former MEP for the South East of England and current mayor of Brighton and Hove. Alex, last year's election seems a very long time ago. Um, the Greens, the Greens did go up. Uh, to 2.7%, um, as, as a Labour was leaking votes to other parties. Um, how would you, how would you sort of assess the campaign? Was it, was it a good one for the Greens? Uh, no. Uh, I mean, it was good in, <laughs> in, in absolute terms. You know, our, our vote share went up. Um, I think we came second in a couple of places, which we hadn't come before. And obviously we returned Caroline Lucas as our sole MP um, in Westminster. But I think that, you know, overall, we don't have a Labour government. We've still got the Tories in. Um, and that's not something that I think any of us would want. Um, and we uh, embarked on something called the Remain Alliance uh, with Plaid Cymru and the Lib Dems. And, um, you know, this is something that I really did not agree with at all at the time. Um, and I was much more in favour of us not fielding candidates in Labour marginals. And for me, a, a Labour marginal would be anything with a majority of less than 3,000 votes. I think that's fair. Um, but, you know, now in hindsight, even that wouldn't have prevented this Tory majority government that we've got. So, um, you know, there's no solution uh, really to that um, other than perhaps a, an anti-Tory alliance, but that would require Labour to change their constitution. It would require them to cooperate with other parties. And so that in every single constituency throughout the country, you would therefore only have one anti-Tory candidate get put up against the Tories. And I think that is our, it may seem wild and, and crazy, but I do think that that's our only hope of getting the Tories out in the next five years, if that's what people want to achieve. Um, and, uh, and then potentially, you know, return um, uh, to uh, and be part of Europe again and, and not have the awful austerity, which I suspect um, they will, the Tories will ensue um, in the years to come. So, you know, it's a pretty grim future if we don't kick the Tories out, essentially. And I'm willing to, uh, you know, do what it takes to ensure that they are kicked out uh, across party lines. But it does it does require cooperation from the other parties, unfortunately. And, and obviously, it's, it's nobody's priority at the moment. But do you see uh, do you see Britain rejoining the EU? I think it could happen. Yeah, I mean, it would take at least a decade, I suppose, for it to happen quickly, um, uh, but probably much longer. Uh, so, you know, it's a real shame that it's going to take that long, but there's no political will in this country for that to happen at the moment. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, we, we, I think we just have to sit back at the moment and see how Brexit pans out, whether it's a, a no-deal Brexit or something else, you know, how that might um, work with any coronavirus um, recession, whether we'll go into depression if we have a no-deal Brexit as well. 
Um, so th there's a lot for us to kind of work through over the next decade or so. But I would like to think that, you know, we do rejoin at some point. Well, I wonder if, you know, one thing that's going to happen with this seemingly inevitable uh, corona recession is that mm. the, the, the sort of economic ill effects of Brexit that have been kind of, you know, firing up Remainers since 2016 mm. will just get sort of swallowed up. They'll just be, mm. uh, they'll just be sort of mm. more red ink on the, on the balance sheet. Um, and actually mm. there won't be a demonstrable sort of case of, oh, well, this is what it would have been like had we not. And so yeah, maybe there will, ne there will never be that kind of moment where you just get to go, well, this is what Brexit has done because it's just all swept up in this tsunami. It is, yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, well, it could be, uh, more, more optimistically, obviously this could be a sort of uh, a reset moment um, in many ways. And I mm. wonder, do you think it could be an opportunity uh, to sort of reshape politics um, along green lines? And if so, like, the, you know, sort of good for reforms in that area. Of course, if they're seen to be hampering recovery, economic recovery, mm. that's, that's going to make them very unpopular. What do you think is the kind of the way forward? Um, well, I think what this moment shows is that governments can intervene in the economy in key moments and they can shift resources very quickly. And that kind of gives me hope. Um, you know, I think this virus has exposed some pretty chronic problems with our economy um, and perhaps we're being hit harder um, than other countries because of things like our health service being, you know, so poorly funded and privatised. Um, and, that you know, like I said before, a lot of our economy is now built on re really precarious work. Um, and, and other people have have um, alluded to that as well. So uh, that gives me some hope that we can now, you know, there is an opportunity now to do something positive. But obviously, it, it also is a challenge, and, and and without the right political will, it could it could mean the opposite, um, and that would inflict a large amount of hurt and pain on very many people, but obviously the most poorest in, the poorest in society, and that's a real worry. Well, we, it's almost in, in sort of, um, in terms of environmental damage, we're almost seeing this completely bizarre uh, and unasked for experiment. And when you reduce air travel and road traffic by like 90%, it turns out the air gets cleaner, um, mm. you know, there's less health damage uh, from pollution. Um, now, obviously, that's not something that was chosen, nor something that will be, no. will be tenable. But do you think this will end up giving um, sort of scientists and campaigners huge amounts of sort of um, sort of data, case studies, sort of object lessons that could actually be that could actually be useful? That once you've shown people the difference that it makes, if, for example, fewer people drive, if people take fewer flights, you've actually got examples. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we already know that over the last kind of month or, or so, CO2 levels have uh, dropped by 30% in some places in Italy, for example. Um, yeah, I mean, we do have that now. I wouldn't want us to have inflicted this virus in order to come up with that data. <laughs> no. um, don't get me wrong. Um, and and, and I, I don't live in a parallel universe. I know that we're going to return to business as usual as soon as this is over, I suspect, um, which is unfortunate. Um, but I, th I, I think that's, that's do you think, inevitable. Do you think we will, though, in terms of, for example, the once companies have realised um, which of their, uh, their work travel, you know, their kind of business mm. class flights, are really essential and which aren't, do you think that we mm -hmm. will go back to that level of... Um, for example, air travel that we've seen before. Are some people just going to go, actually, we can save a lot of money here? Well, I would have hoped that they would have thought of that anyway, you know, <laughs> um, uh, and that they didn't need this to tell them that that wasn't the way that they should be operating. Um, I worry that, that people will just go back to business as usual, whether that's businesses or indeed people, you know, just flying about for the sake of it. Um, you know, we all travel a lot. I mean, I've obviously spent the, the last part of this year getting the train to and from 
Belgium and, and, and Strasbourg every week. Um, and that is a lot of pollution. I think businesses, organisations, people can conduct their lives differently and there can be the same output. We definitely have the technology now, as we can sort of say from today's programme, although we have struggled a little bit with that as well. <laughs> We're going to details. But, um, you know, we can work remotely very easily. Um, and so one would hope that the lessons would be drawn from this and people wouldn't need to to travel as much because, I mean, people don't necessarily want to do that. Mm. I know that I found that a big struggle, actually, when I was an MEP, doing all of those journeys backwards and forwards every week and being away from my family. Um, and it's not something that I, I miss terribly. Um, and, and people will be more productive if they're happier and if they're not having to do all of that travel. So I would hope, very much hope that that business as usual doesn't, isn't, you know, on the cards uh, in a few weeks or months and or do, years time. But um, I worry that it might well be. And do you think of the appeal of um, a lot of the sort of Green New Deal policies mm. is that it's yeah. creating something and it's offering jobs and it's not, mm. there is almost, obviously there is a side of kind of a, a green politics, which is, is asking people to do certain things less. Um, mm. And then there is a side which is just like, well, let's do these things instead. Do you think that sort of, the, yeah. that inevitably the, 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 the policies that are really going to get traction in this sort mm. of coming recession are ones which 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 seem very energetic and um, econ- you know have a lot of economic stimulus and go right yeah. here are where the jobs I mean, I, are. Yeah, exactly. And I think you know, well, the Green New Deal has been um, bandied about for a long, long time now. I mean, Caroline Lucas first kind of. Uh, worked on this back in 2007 when I worked for her with a whole host of uh, different economists. Mm. But it wasn't really taken up then. And that was at the beginning of the the recession. So you would expect it to have taken off then. But I think things have changed now with the IPCC report and so forth. Climate change has really gone up people's agenda and it's being taken much more seriously now. And together with this coronavirus and the impact on that, um, both on the economy and people's just lives, um, I think that the Green New Deal becomes more and more attractive because like you said, you know, it, it puts a huge amount of investment in kickstarting the the economy and it would improve people's lives. That's the core of it. It would mean better public transport, warm homes, new jobs. I mean, there is work that's done on a just transition as well, which is really moving people over, you know, well from uh, the old industries to the new industries so that, for example, they might be, um, given a decent retirement um, and, and can, can retire in dignity or retrain in the new industries. So it's a very positive offer that could do wonders for kickstarting our economy. And, you know, I, I, the, in Europe, they are taking it quite seriously. Uh, Ursula van der Leyen, it's one of her uh, core pillars, the Green New Deal. Um, it's not exactly the Green New Deal that I would like, but at least she's talking the talk. Whereas in the UK, mm. I cannot imagine Boris Johnson even uttering the words Green New Deal. Um, I mean, it's a real joke that the Tories emblem is a, is a tree. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I have more hope of the Green New Deal being put in place in Europe than I do in the UK. And I, I really worry about what any rece- recession slash depression will do to people in Britain. Thanks, Alex. Well, we've reached the end of the show, which means it's time for the Brexit Bridge. Every week, we build a metaphorical bridge linking us back to our friends in Europe. Our guest, Alex Phillips, who is literally in on the continent of Europe as we speak. Uh, What would you like to add to the bridge? Well, as a French teacher and Francophile, uh, I'd say learning European languages. Can I put that on? You absolutely can. Great. So are you are you are you raising are you raising kind of are you raising a bilingual child? Yeah, so my little boy is two and a half, and his English isn't very good. He puts on quite a funny, weird voice when he speaks in English. <laughs> <laughs> um, like him. But his French is better than my husband's, and my husband needs Google Translate to understand what he's saying. <laughs> uh, we speak at French French at home, so you know it's just 
it's incredible having more than one language it's such a gift so if you if there's if something that you can give your child and it's that then of course you're going to do it wonderful that's the show uh my thanks to ian alex andreu and alex phillips thanks for joining us uh now for our theme song demon is a monster by corner shop and some thanks to our latest patreon backers from me to Adam Hater, Colin Baines, Grant Marshall, Julian Hartley, and Sharman, Ian Robinson, and Spencer. Massive thanks and good wishes from me to Lindsay Lewis, Kerry Murphy, Sonia Calvert, Parag Yajnik, Bruce Johnston, Peter Sturk, and Bob Ellie. And finally, thanks from me to Andy Stagg, Alex Boyle, Martin Krask, Rachel, Matt Pitcher, Stuart St. John, and Benedict Cohen. Stay well, and we'll see you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ian Dunn and Alex Andreu. Their guest this week was Alex Phillips. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The producer is Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer is Jacob Archbold. And Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.